Amen and Amen. I see smiling faces that, that spoke to, to my heart, and I trust it well, spoke to your heart as well. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. I promise we're making headway. We're going to take a, a running go at it as I promised last week. We're actually going to make it from verses 14 to 34 this Sunday. So uh, that, that's, that's headway. But John chapter 7, we're going to be finishing the section um, according to our outline of uh, verses 14 to 24, Jesus placing the law before the people in the temple. Um, and we're going to look at how that leads to the rejection of Christ. Now, most of the time as we, we begin visiting the topic of the rejection of Christ, most of the time we look at the cross, right? And rightfully so. That's where uh, the Lord Jesus Christ gave His life. That's where His blood was spilt and, and paid the price for our sins. That's, that's where he, he, he took the, the sin and the wrath of God in His body, right? He didn't stay on the cross, Right? He went to the grave and, and that's where He defeated sin. That's where He defeated Satan and death and He rose victorious. Right? But most of the time when we think of the rejection of Christ, we're looking at the cross. But as I studied this week, it began to dawn on me that the cross was just the, the culmination of rejection of Christ. As you look at, at Jesus, who didn't stay on the cross, but as we look to the cross and we see Jesus hanging there, that was all the different rejections adding up to that place. That was the end of the rejection. This week, as I studied, it began to dawn on me that the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah, the Holy One of God, was being rejected in the house of God. The rejection of Christ began in the house of God, the hearts of God's people, but it was in the house of God. We're going to continue this morning to see how God's chosen people, Israel was, was the elect, this is who Jesus came with the new covenant to, we're going to see how God's chosen people allowed themselves to be progressively moved by Satan to a place where rejecting the Son of God to the place where rejecting their Messiah King from the house of God, rejecting the Messiah King from the assembling of themselves together, rejecting the Messiah King from their lives. We're going to look at how that was their final decision. It's a sobering topic, but it's one that needs to be looked at. Dear Heavenly Father, just as we open up, Lord, and our Bibles are opened and we're looking to You to just, just lead us through this study, we're looking to Your Spirit to illuminate, Lord. We're, we're looking to Your Spirit to examine our hearts, Lord, and, and perhaps there's confession that needs to be made that's hindering us from some of these truths. Perhaps there's, there's excuses that is keeping us from finding, finding some of these different teachings, these doctrines that would change our lives forever. Lord, I pray that You would remove those things. And I pray that You would move in a powerful way in every heart that's listening this morning or evening or whatever time that is. Lord, I pray that You would move, Lord. And I pray that there would be grace, but there would be 
there would be exhortation as well. Lord, we're not allowed to stay the same. The Word's been opened. I pray that you would lead and work through me, and I pray that you would just keep us, keep us on track this morning. And I just pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to step into verse 14 to 18, recognizing that Jesus had been calling His own countrymen. Jesus had been calling the people to God. And we recognize, especially after last week, that Jesus didn't speak for Himself. He was speaking for God. Right? Jesus wasn't speaking for Himself. He was speaking for God. And the people needed to understand that. Beginning in verse 14, it says, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? And Jesus answered them, said, My doctrine, that word that often we run from, that word that, that, we, that, that off switch, as soon as we hear doctrine, theology, and it goes together, and we just, we, it's not for us, right? Doctrine just simply means God's instruction, God's teaching, God's commands. My doctrine is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone wills to do His will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Jesus was speaking for God in the house of God. Verse 18, He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, which is what men normally do, right? As if a man is taking, taking the, the position of speaking, most of the time it's for himself, it's for his own agenda. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus had been calling Israel, calling his people to God. Jesus places God's doctrine, God's teachings before the people for anyone that wills to do God's will, which means that there was an ultimatum given. There was an ultimatum. When God's Word is open, there's a decision that needs to be made. We're not allowed to stay neutral. As these people sat underneath the teachings of Jesus, they weren't allowed to stay ignorant. They couldn't turn off. They had to listen. There was a requirement of them. As they listened, as they were sitting underneath teaching, they had to recognize that they were not okay before God. They were in a position of, of no relationship. They, they were in a position of broken fellowship. And as Jesus spoke, they had to recognize that they were not okay and they had to be moved to respond. That moving, that, that repentance is, is moving. It's not an easy step to leave a religion. It's not an easy step to move from what you were raised in, right? It's not an easy step to leave what you've always known. It's not an easy step to leave what your normal has always been. It really isn't. I recognize that. But as Jesus presented God's doctrine, God's commands, the people had to admit that they were not okay the way they were, and they had to see their lives as God sees it, and they had to respond. They had to be moved to believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. When you think about it, Israel was being called to a new normal. 
We hear that term a lot. What is the new normal going to be, right? See the connection. Israel was being called to a new normal. They had to see their lives as God sees it and be honest before God. And we're going to have to see a lot of that as our churches open up whenever that is. We're going to have to come back and face this new normal. We're going to have to be honest before God with where we are. That's personally as well as in the churches. We're going to have to be transparent about what we've been doing. We're going to have to be moved to that new normal. We're going to have to be found wanting to change and make Christ our King. The same way Israel was being forced to look at. And that's what repentance is. It's being honest before God. It's being transparent. And it's wanting to change. It's wanting to be found pleasing. Jesus had been calling the people to God. We see in verse, um, we'll move on to verse 19. We see Jesus calling the people out in the house of God. Now, I don't know if anybody here has ever had or online had the pleasure of someone calling you out in the midst of a crowd, (laughs) calling you out for error, calling you out for sin, calling you out for hypocrisy. It's really an uncomfortable feeling and a personal experience. I've been there, right? But as you look at verse 19, Jesus full of compassion, full of grace and truth, still had the, held the authority of God. Right? I was having a conversation with a, a dear friend of mine this afternoon, and the idea of Jesus being righteously frustrated, he's allowed to be. Right? God got angry with the, the, the stubbornness of his people. Right? I don't think this was all pleasant and purple frills as he, he speaks verse 19 to these people who think they're perfectly okay before God. As he explains to them that he's speaking for God, he's giving them the doctrine. Verse 19 says, Did Moses, did not Moses, give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? As Jesus is looking out into, and now again, with the temple, picture thousands of people listening to Jesus speak in the temple courtyards. And Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the people that are following the Pharisees and He's saying, did Moses not give you the law and yet none of you keep it? Jesus is calling these people, these Jews who who think they're okay, He's calling them out in the house of God. These people are in the house of God. These Jewish people are living in disobedience to God, and yet they're still in the house of God. These people outside the temple are not living for God. I mean, they have their religion. They have their own ideas of what pleases God. They're not living for God outside of the temple. And and Jesus here is, is, is like, well, why are you here? You have the law of Moses that you say you're living by, but you're not keeping those commandments. Why are you in the house of God? Jesus is calling them out. Why are you even here? Why had they gathered in the house of God? If I bring that to an application, I almost picture the, the avid church attendee. They've somehow, they've somehow made it past the greeters. Right? And they've somehow found that elusive bulletin right? that, that seems to, to always evade people. They found it to the same seat they always sit in. Right? They, they, they've hunkered in for the service. They're ready for the singing. I mean, they're here. And all the other formalities that come with the assembling of themselves together, we're here, but we're not looking to meet with God. 
These people were in the house of God with the Son of God standing before them. And the very idea of God speaking, the very idea of God's doctrines being presented, the very idea of Jesus being that authority, that intercession, these people got hostile over that. And yet they were still in the house of God. Jesus looks at the people in the house of God and calls them out. Really does show us how easily the rejection of Christ can be done sitting in the house of God. Right? It shows us how easily the rejection of Christ can be done in the house of God. Jesus calls them out, and we see in verse 20, the people respond. <laughs> I, I don't encourage you to, to try and picture a face of who the first person would be as Jesus is calling them out to say, you, sir, have a demon! <laughs> I, I think we all have strong-willed people. I think before I surrendered my life, that would have been me. Um, but really, there it is. Jesus is calling them out, and the people respond. There's an answer from the hearts of the people. Um, Jesus calls them out. The people respond to the call. You, the people answered and said, you have a demon. I wonder how many times you're allowed to get away with <laughs> saying that to Jesus, the Messiah, Holy One of God, the, the King. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And you can probably tell that I've been laughing um, a little bit, but it is a serious matter here. Jesus calls them out. The people respond to the call. You, mister, you've been up there preaching God's doctrine. You've been up there exposing our sin. You're up there calling us out there and, 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 and mocking us about this precious law, Moses' law that we hold you know, just, just test desperately. I mean, that is what we prize above all things. Mister, that is not how I see it. Now here is how I see it, and here's how it's going to be. God is the God of Abraham. Right? And we know this is what the Jews, this was their stumbling block. God is the God of Abraham, and I am an Israelite. I was born for this. I was born into this faith. My, my daddy and his daddy before was part of this gathering. We hear that in the churches all the time. Right? What you're saying, the, the doctrine that you're presenting, that, that doesn't come first. This doctrine stuff is not making my life look good. Right? As Jesus is teaching, it, it's, not, it, it's not giving them what they're looking for. It's not making my life look good, nor is it making me feel good. And, and follow me where I'm going with this. Right? It wasn't making the Pharisees, it wasn't making the people look good, it wasn't making the people feel good. Picture them saying, I came to the temple to worship, not have my dirty laundry of my heart exposed. You, sir, must have a demon. You must be of the devil. And in the house of God, as we see Jesus calling the people out, calling them to repentance, calling them to God, calling them to a change in their life. They accuse Him of being demon-possessed. And as we think of what the people are looking for, what do we have emerging out of the temple? What do we have emerging out of the house of God? We have the emergent church <laughs> arising out of it. There's no concern for doctrine. There's no desire to talk about sin or hell or the, the foundations of, of what it's built on. They're not interested in the purpose for which Jesus came. They're not interested in the commission. They're interested in how it makes them feel. 
They're interested in, in how it fits into their agenda or their religion. They're interested in, in their senses and how they leave. You have a demon. I can't picture saying that to Jesus. And yet they did. Have you ever been in a, a spiritually dead church? Have you ever been in a spiritually dead church that's almost like a country club? And I'm talking like a, a playing euchre on a Saturday night and going to the movies on the weekends. Well, well it's Bible studies uh, are canceled because of lack of interest. Have you ever been in a, a spiritually dead church where the Bible studies become more like socials? And the ministries are so thin you can see through them? You ever asked why that's the case? Or asked how they got there? How they got to that place where it was just a religion and it was spiritually dead? I thought through that this week. I really feel that the, the, it, it shows us here that it's because the, the church is in that state. It's because they've asked Jesus to leave. They've asked the Messiah King just as, as the people of Israel were about to reject Christ and ask Him to leave His house. That church is dead because they've asked Jesus to leave and Jesus has. It's a sad thing to consider. Today, we may not tell Jesus He works for Satan. Like I don't think anybody in their right mind would tell them that, that they works for Satan. But we very clearly show that who He is biblically as He preaches doctrine, as He calls out sin, as He calls us for change, we very clearly show, biblically, that this Jesus doesn't work for us. This Jesus doesn't work for us. So I ask the question as we, we step into verse, verses 20 to 21. This is what happens when God's people reject Christ, the Son of the living God? What happens when God's people reject Christ, the Son of the living God. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Just very quickly. I mean, this is the, the framework that the, the Apostle John begins the Gospel with. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. He just finished explaining that John the Baptist had come bearing witness of the light. He wasn't that light. In verse 9, that was the true light. My Bible capitalizes light, speaking to Jesus, the, the Son of God. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The world chose not to know him, chose to reject him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Rejection. What happens when God's people reject Christ, the Son of the living God? <laughs> people answered and said, You have a demon. We've all in our, our Bible readings heard of the unpardonable sin, have we not? And, and even this week it's been interesting with our Word of Life quiet times. It's kind of come out and it's interesting enough that we're looking at uh, let's address the unpardonable sin here just briefly here. First off, we need to recognize that the unpardonable sin does not apply to today. Right? The unpardonable sin in its context needs to have a bodily Jesus bringing the new covenant, 
Right, a bodily Jesus speaking to, to, to Israel, and it needs to have the signs and wonders of the working of the Spirit authenticating the message, authenticating who He is. Today, we don't have the bodily Jesus with us. Right? We know where He is, right? Because that is the, 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 the working, almost the end of our Gospel. Because right? Jesus came, He was born in a manger. He lived a sinless life fully God, fully man, and He willingly went to the cross. Right? He shed His blood as payment for our sins. He, he allowed His body to be broken on our behalf. He went to the grave. He defeated sin, Satan, and death, and He rose victorious. And the Bible tells us He's seated at the right hand of the Father bodily. So that's where He is, which makes the, the, the unpardonable sin for today not possible. When you chase that out, it is important for us to understand that for us today, there is no sin that grace won't cover. There is no sin because he, he, Christ paid the full price. He paid the price for all sin. There is no sin. It doesn't matter how far you've run from Christ. right? His blood has paid that price. You turn. And you look to that cross and you ask for forgiveness and you believe. You believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That grace covers you. You are saved. It doesn't matter how deep that ditch is, how entrenched you are in that addiction. Right? There is no sin that far that will take you away that grace will not cover. But, but, I put three butts in my notes, so I got one more. But today, today there is no greater sin than the rejection of the Son's sacrifice. I'll say that one more time. That's just how serious this is. There is no greater sin than the rejection of the sacrifice of God's only Son on that cross. For the rejection, for that great sin of rejection, there is a great white throne judgment. At the great white throne judgment for that sin, there is a very real final eternity in hell that will be the penalty for that great sin, rejecting the death of God's Son on the cross. Now I'm pausing there and in my mind and then trying to, to process because some people really struggle with that. And I wasn't sure whether I was going to, to get into this, but I know young preachers really struggle with there being a real hell. Right? God, is, God is a God of love. God wouldn't send people to hell. God would not put them in eternal dormant, or torment. God is, not, God is just. God wouldn't do that. Well, number one, the Bible says that there's a choice. God does not hide it right from the beginning. There is an eternal heaven for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and place their faith in Him. And there is an eternal hell with an eternal judgment as penalty for rejecting the Gospel of Christ. There is no greater sin. The choice must be made before it's too late. And I think I'll just leave it, leave it at there. We see Jesus is rejected. You have a demon. We see Jesus is rejected in the house of God. And then there's that horrible word, apostasy. 
apostasy. Apostasy is knowing the gospel, knowing full well what saves you, knowing the truth, and choosing not to believe it, choosing to reject it, which again is what the nation of Israel was guilty of and will be cut off for, the rejection of Christ. And God is just in that. God offered that free gift. God offered them the new covenant. God did all that He could do other than making the choice for them. And we know He won't do that. This allows, that cutting off allows for the church age that we live in now. It allows for that pause, that age of grace that we see. And I've been calling it the new current promise. And that's important for us to understand because as we move in John, we're going to see a shift of of Jesus reaching out to Israel to Jesus preparing His apostles for the coming Holy Spirit, for the coming church age, for the coming period of grace. But at this point still, the, the Israel is in apostasy. They're rejecting. And, and we read all through this in Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 3, and Luke chapter 11 that this generation will answer for that as they sought a sign. Right? Jesus is like, no, you're going to get the sign of Jonah and that's it. There I go on the ground I come up in three days. Right? This generation that is rejecting Jesus is going to stand at the great white throne judgment and answer for their rejection of Christ. Over the next four days, right? we have in verse 20, we have you have a demon. Over the next four days, and we looked at this the last couple weeks, um, the people in, in verses 8, verse 48, chapter 8, verse 48 of John, says, Then Jesus answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? these people will stand at the great white throne judgment and answer for the rejection of Christ. Come with me to John chapter 10, verse 20. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen? What happens to God's people when they reject Christ? There is judgment. There is judgment. This morning, can you hear Satan laughing in this scenario? Can you hear Satan laughing as God's people willingly reject Christ, the Son of God, with open Scriptures? Satan laughing. Jesus is rejected in the house of God. Jesus calls out Israel's religion that they call their faith. And we're going to have to move a little bit quicker here. Verses 21 to 24, Jesus calls out Israel's religion that they call faith. Verse 21, Jesus, having just been (laughs) accused of having a demon, being demon-possessed, an easy way of remembering that is the people were saying there, you are Satan-filled rather than Spirit-filled. And when you think about it, Jesus was fully God, fully man. He was very, very, very much (laughs) Spirit-filled. They've made a clear separation, the clear severance in their understanding. They do not believe. Verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Now this is the part where I started to, to, to really realize that there's a righteous frustration going on here. These people aren't listening. They're accusing Him of being demon-possessed. He's going back two years prior to John chapter 5 and he's saying to them, I did one work that healing that man at Bethesda two years ago. That whole intent was to gain an audience with the Pharisees so that he could share the Gospel, so he could witness to them. I did one work two years ago and you all marvel. 
Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, before you go too far down that road. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? I mean, I can almost picture Jesus saying, Really? Really? Like, like two years ago, that's still, that's still a burr underneath your saddle? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. <laughs> I did one work, and you all marvel. Jesus calls out Israel's religion that they were calling faith. It was almost, he's saying, get over yourselves. Get over the, the legalism. Make your decisions. Make your standards. Make your judgments on the Word of God. Make it on God's doctrine, what God teaches. Healing a man on the Sabbath is not the issue here. It's your sinful pride, it's your sinful agenda. It's your, it's your religion. It's your motives. Verse 22, Moses therefore gave you circumcision. What was the purpose of circumcision? Right? You, you brought that eight-day-old eight uh, baby boy, you brought him to the temple, and the family, the mom, dad, and, and, and the family stood around, and they identified him with God. It was a glorifying time. Right? It, was, it was intended to get your eyes and your focus vertically on who God is, God Jehovah. So was healing this man two years ago. Healing this man at the pool. They say, pick up your bed and walk. The whole intent was to glorify God, gain that audience and share the gospel with these men. I, I, again, it's like they're really, are we still going through this? The, the Pharisees, are we still going through this people? The problem the Pharisees had with the man that's preaching God's doctrine, the one that they're accusing of having a demon, the problem that they had with this man preaching God's doctrine had nothing to do with what he was doing, but had everything to do with them. It had everything to do with them. It had nothing on Jesus. It had everything to do with them on their demands. And the fact that the things of God, the things that Jesus was calling them out on, did not fit into their religion, did not fit into their picture, did not fit into what they were willing to do. Verse 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Almost sounds like a, a motive or a, a, I think or a motto. A motto for a church board or a motto for a church. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. This morning we need to recognize that it's not your buildings. It's not your clothes. It's not your special music. It's not your skinny jeans and silly haircuts. I, I'm old enough I can say that. It's not where you sit. It's not wrestling with hymns or courses. It's not your mission trip experiences. In the church, you judge what is right according to God's standard. Not your own. Not your own. This is the measuring rod for Christianity. As Jesus is, is looking out on the, the thousands standing there listening to Him, He's saying this, this, all of the temple, all of this is not about you. It's not about you. This is the church's Christianity and the church's measuring rod. 
This is not about you. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Two thoughts. If church services, if music and programs ever become about what people want, if it ever becomes about what people are looking for as priority, if it ever becomes about what feels right for them, the doors of that church need to close. This is not about you. It's about Him. It's about Him. Religion had found its way through the doors into the hearts of God's people in that, that Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is standing in the house of God, knocking, asking to come in. Jesus had been calling. Right? Jesus called out the religion that they called their faith. This would have been a high-tension situation. Right? Jesus had been calling. People had been watching. People are always watching. There's always people around the perimeter here. Right? Verse 25. Jesus had been calling. People are watching. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Right? Is this not the one that they've been looking for? I mean, the Pharisees had chased Jesus all the way up there to Galilee and back again. Right? This isn't new. They've been seeking his life, seeking for ways, ways to take him, to remove him from the scene. Isn't this not whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Hmm. Do the rulers know indeed that this truly is the Christ? Do they know that this is the Holy One of God that we've been traveling all over there, the Old Testament Scriptures the last couple of weeks looking at? Do they know that this is the Holy One of God? <laughs> if there's ever a, a time there, we realize that um, there is nothing more obvious to people than backpedaling leadership. I think we understand that as the people are speaking. Verse 27, However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. These people had some loose ends in their eschatological, I got that word right, eschatological thinking in their, in their doctrines, in their understandings. They had some loose ends. All right? We need to understand that when it came to the Jews, both Pharisees, there were different camps that they belonged to. There were different camps in the people. There were different ideas the people were watching for the Messiah King, but He came in various forms. They had different ideas. And the next section, the best I could, I could come up with there is, is the people were watching for the Messiah King, and with Jesus standing there before them, this is Him? Right? As they're anticipating the Messiah King in various forms, this is, here He is? This, 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 is, this is who He is? Let me add to your picture this morning about what was going through the minds of some of these religious Jews. And don't be too harsh on them either. I mean, we have Genesis to Revelation, right? Those Jews had Genesis to Malachi, right? It, 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 it's, it's a little bit easier for us to look back over the whole story and recognize how all these pieces fit together. So don't be too harsh. Israel was anticipating different kinds of Messiah kings that had to be harmonized somehow in their understanding. 
as they read their Old Testament Scriptures, which is the Septuagint, God's Word clearly marked out that there was a coming King of Peace. Right? There was clearly a coming King of War. There was a clearly a coming King from God, a divine ruler that was to come. There was a, a divine King bringing God's government. And there was a King that was going to sacrifice Himself Right? To bring the people out of bondage. So very, very quickly, we're just briefly going to chase through this because this, this has to connect for us in order for us to move on. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. It'll be like a sword drill for us. And again, if you, if you can't keep up, then just press pause. <laughs> and uh, we'll get this. Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. There was coming a king of peace. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. It's who they were anticipating. Right? This is Jesus the Messiah standing before them. I mean, they're anticipating the Messiah king. Here he is. This is who we've been looking for. Your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Come down to the last part of verse 10. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Everywhere where Abraham traversed, everywhere that Abraham uh, journeyed from the, the land of Ur, they were anticipating a king of peace, and here he is. They were anticipating a king of war. Zechariah 14, verse 2, 2 to 4. I will begin in verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. Israel didn't always have a pleasant existence in their country. Things were rough all the time. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the house rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into the captivity, but the remnant of the people shall be, not be cut off from the city. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. They were anticipating a king of war, a Messiah king of war. Here Jesus is in the temple of God. He will fight against those nations as he fights in the days of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem to east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two. They were anticipating a king of war. They were anticipating a divine king of God, ruler of all. Turn with me to Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. This is your prophecy of Bethlehem. We're going to see the people ask about that here in, in weeks ahead. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting, from the days of eternity. Picture anticipating the Messiah King and Jesus standing before them going, here He is. <laughs> right? Are we catching that flow of what they were anticipating? Isaiah 9.6. This is a common one. Most of the time at Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon His shoulder. The Messiah standing in the temple of God. Here's the Messiah King. Here He is. The government will rest 
upon His shoulder, and His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David over His kingdom to order it, establish it, the judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Messiah King, this is Him. Here He is. Even thinking through and studying through Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant, there was an anticipation of a king that would give his life right, for bondage. It would remove them, pull them out of the bondage that they were in. They were anticipating. See the different, different various Messiah kings they were anticipating. And here Jesus is saying, I'm here. I am the Son of God. I've come from heaven. God has sent me. I've come to do the, the will of God. And the people are going, uh, we were anticipating the Messiah King, and, but here He is. Jesus would fulfill all these prophecies. But with Jesus having come, was He what they were looking for? Was He what they were looking for? John chapter 7, verse 28 says, then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, and it was important for us to go through those verses. Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple. What was he teaching? <laughs> any one of those passages. Any one of those authentication. This is me, this is me, this is me. Which king are you looking for? This is me. Saying, you both know me, and you know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. As Jesus stood before them, he was indeed all of the above. He had come to bring peace on all who believe in the Son of God. He had come to bring peace in that messianic kingdom if they would believe that he is the Son of God. But we know that there was a, a war that had to be fought first, the war for which he had come. That war was not with flesh and blood. It was with Satan, sin, the principalities and powers, right? death itself. And that victory was at the cross taking it to the grave. Verse 30, Therefore they sought to take Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in Him. What a beautiful verse. In the midst of apostasy, in the midst of rejecting Christ in the house of God. And many believed in Him and said, when the Christ comes, will He do more signs than these which this man has done? Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 3, and Luke chapter 11 all, all take place and tap into this feast account. There is a turning here. As they call Jesus a demon, as they say He's Satan-filled and not Spirit-filled, there's a turning, a cutting off, a response to the rejection that is taking place here with the accusation of demons, with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, with the deliberate attempts on the life of the Holy One of God. We've come to Jesus' shift of focus from Israel's new covenant to the coming new current promise we hold today in the body of Christ body of Christ, the church begins in Acts chapter 2. And Jesus was going to start preparing His apostles for that. In close, and pastors always say that, and I've been told not to say that. I don't know why I just said that. <laughs> but anyhow, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning Him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take Him. 
God's people had enough. Pharisees, rejection is final. Right? It's done. We're moving. Verse 33 and 34. I want you to pay close attention to this. Then Jesus said to them. Right? Who's he speaking to? The Pharisees. Right? They're the people that have been listening, the people that are rejecting. I want you to picture where Nicodemus fits into this. Nicodemus of John chapter 3 who came by night and Jesus explained this new covenant, the spiritual life he'd come to bring. The last part of John chapter 7, it has Nicodemus saying, hey, do we judge people before we hear them speak? Right? Things are clicking for this man. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me and where I am, you cannot come. I want you to picture Nicodemus sitting there who's been piecing things together with his eyes wide open as it dawns on him what Jesus is saying here. I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus isn't just telling them He's going away. He's telling them that Israel's chance had passed. The rejection, that cutting off, the door to the ark had just closed. They missed the boat. As He speaks to them, you will seek Me and not find Me. Where I am, you cannot come. The pruning shears, the cutting off of Romans chapter 11, Right? They are descending. I don't think there it's completely cut off yet. I think they're just after John 10 where Jesus says, I am the door. Right? And anyone who comes in or enters in by Me shall be saved. And they shall go in and out and find pasture. I think that's when that finally, because they shortly after that, as soon as He's finished that, that little discourse, Verse 20 says, And many of them said he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? I think that's where the chomp happens. Right? It's over. The rejection, the cutting off. But they had definitely made their decision here. And instead of, listen closely, instead of the Messiah's coming being imminent, we know the meaning to imminent means it's, it's immediate. There's nothing barring it. It's hanging over their heads. Instead of Christ's coming being imminent, Christ's departure was imminent. I want you to think about that. Instead of Christ's coming being imminent, happen at any moment, Christ is saying, my departure, I am leaving you. Israel, you had your chance. Nicodemus knew what that meant. No more second chances. Israel had been judged. You don't get unlimited time when the gospel, when Jesus is presenting, when, when, when that opportunity is there, you don't have unlimited time to believe. You don't get to behave however you want when you are sitting before the Son of God, when you have that gospel presented to you. You don't get to shake your fist at God without consequences. You don't, you don't get to, to do whatever you want. There is an abrupt end <laughs> There's an abrupt end to what you think you control. God's Messiah King had come to Israel and now God was leaving. Whew. Folks, we need to rethink 
our own anticipation of the coming Messiah. Right? The rapture, the shout, the trumpet. We need to rethink that. The believer this morning looks for the imminency of Christ's return. Right? It's hanging over our heads. It could happen at any moment. But when you think about looking into your eyes, the eyes of your loved ones, and realize that without Christ, they live with the imminence of Christ's departure. And you dwell on that, and I, and I don't dwell too much because it, it's a horrible thought, but it's a reality that when that rapture happens, Christ removes His church. Christ removes His Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, you are in a godless society, a godless world. And the scary thing is, for three and a half years, people love it. There is peace. There, there's, they're, they're just basking. And we can see that today. But then there's a horrible death for the rejection. You either believe and you're martyred or, or you disbelieve and, and, and you're judged at the great white throne judgment and there's a very real eternal death in hell. This morning, I want you to read verses 33 and 34 differently. And if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior this morning, I want you to read these verses like Jesus is witnessing to you. He's pleading with you. Don't reject Him. You don't have unlimited chances at this. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. Right? He's going to call the church away. He's going to call the Holy Spirit out. And this is going to be an evil, wicked place if you do not place your faith in Christ. I shall be with you a little while longer and then I go to Him who sent me. That's the promise to the church. Be caught up in the air. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, these words speak to you. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Rejection of Christ means you have been rejected. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray um, that these words sink in. They rattle, they rattle our, our, our chains. Lord, they rattle us out of, out of maybe some of the complacency that we've been in. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone listening to this message that doesn't know You as their personal Savior, Lord, I pray that they would come to that place of realizing that there is a real hell for disbelief. There is a real hell and judgment for rejection, Lord. And, and really, being saved is as clear as what they've heard this morning. Or being saved is simply recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Holy One of God, came, lived a sinless life, and gave Himself willingly on the cross to pay the price for everyone's sin. And that when we believe and we ask Him for that forgiveness and to be our personal Savior, we enter into that new life in Him. It's as simple as faith. I pray that they would be moved to that decision and I pray for those of us that are believers, are born again, are baptized in the spiritual body of Christ. Lord, I pray for those that are in our lives that aren't. I pray that we would read verses 33 and 34 differently and that it would light a fire in us and we would take the gospel of Christ as we're commanded to. I thank you for this time. 
Lord, we thank you for, for just this, this ministry that you're allowing us to be part of, Lord. And again, we've been praying that you move in a powerful way. Lord, I pray that uh, your people would respond in our communities. Lord, our, our circles, our bubbles will be changed for your glory. And just pray these things in your precious name. Amen.